Hello, and welcome to Monumental, where we sit down with entrepreneurs, leaders, visionaries, and big thinkers making monumental change. Here's your host, Evan Holliday. Welcome to Monumental. I'm your host, Evan Holliday, and today on the show, we have with us John Kasman. John, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Evan. Thank you for having me on the show. Yes. So glad to have you on today. Um, we, we are actually just recording on, on his podcast, Target Market Insights, a minute ago. Um, so really getting to know John over the last year since Best Ever has been a blast. Um, John is crushing it. And we actually got to meet in Cincinnati not too long ago. Um, but a little background on John. He is a real estate entrepreneur who has partnered with busy professionals to invest in close to $90 million worth of apartments. And he also hosts the Target Market Insights podcast, which I just mentioned, where he covers multifamily and marketing insights. In addition, he's the co-creator of the Midwest Real Estate Networking Summit, a no-pitch event to connect the like-minded investors. And we'll dive into more of the, uh, the conference here in a little bit. Uh, and with a background in marketing, he has overseen campaigns for General Motors, Nike and Coors Light, amongst others. John was even recognized by Black Enterprise Magazine as one of the top executives in advertising and marketing. So, John, that's uh, that's quite an impressive little resume. Let's uh, let's just dive right in to give our listeners a little background on yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I come from corporate America in a sense. You know, after graduating college, I uh, got an internship in Detroit and uh, worked for. Uh, on the agency side, and my client at the time was General Motors. I uh, left there, decided I wanted to do some other things, and ultimately I got a call back to come back to Detroit and work for this other agency. Um, through that, I just kind of bounced around for a little bit, went on the client side of General Motors, moved to Chicago, spent the last eight years in Chicago working at an agency, climbing up the ranks there. Um, and my time in Chicago was great, primarily because it was my first foray into investing, which was something I was very passionate about and very interested in. And actually, one of the reasons I moved to Chicago in the first place. So for some context, when I was in Detroit, it was 2007 to 2011. Uh, so picture, oh, picture this if you can. I'm in Detroit. I'm a young guy, right? So I'm young. I'm single. Um, I'm living in Detroit. I'm working at General Motors 2007, 2008, 2009. And I'm running the Pontiac. I'm an assistant ad manager at Pontiac, right? So um, as the news starts sparking <laughs> up, you know, I got a phone call one day and it said, hey, did you sign that contract with that talent? I said, nope, we're going to sign it, you know, in the next 48 hours. They say, no, you're not. You're not going to sign that. Let them know we're canceling all the agreements. I said, uh, what? I said, <laughs> but we promised him that we were going to sign it. We were all good. We, he just presented something for us last week at the New York Auto Show. And uh, I, they just said, you're not signing it. That's the end of it. Click. And this was like April. And I'm like, what? Like, what, what is going on here? And I called my boss and we, we talked through it real quick. He says, John, let me, let me dig into it and find out. And he called me back like an hour later and said, you're not signing that agreement. And I'm like, what? Uh, and nonetheless, so stuff like this started to happen slowly. So you knew there was something going on. I don't think anyone understood the magnitude of what was happening from an economic standpoint. But I say that to say that, um, you know, going into bankruptcy and, and being able to weather through that, that process where I actually thrived. I saw a lot of people get let go the person who sat to the left of me, the person who sat to the right of me, they both lost their jobs at that time. And I remember one of those individuals in particular, he uh, was diabetic and he had worked for the company for 23 years. He had planned on being a lifer is what they called it. So he was a lifer. He was going to retire from there. You know, after 30 years, he's going to get his gold watch and his pension. And he really didn't have any other plan. That was his plan. Um, so when he got let go, that really caused a devastating impact on the way he saw not just, you know, his income and his, his medical situation, but the way he valued himself. Right. And I think that was really the, the wake up call that I, I don't know say I needed cause I was young, but that was the wake up call that, listen, 
no matter how much you enjoy your job and living and working in corporate America, you need to create something for yourself that allows you to be independent of whatever happens around you. And I didn't control it. You know, they closed the Pontiac brand and I, I worked on a few other brands and thrived and did well. But in the back of my head, I always knew not to tie too much of myself to the brands I was working on and really focus on creating independent wealth and finding ways to be financially free. So, and I love that story and you're exactly right. I mean, it sometimes it takes, um, you know, maybe a little bit of a shocking situation or an uncomfortable situation for us to actually, you know, peel back the, the curtain uh, on our lives and, and our future and our goals um, and actually like take a concerted, like proactive um, attack mode, more or less on where you're headed. Um, so what, what were your next steps after that? Where did you, you said you went to Chicago. How did that, um, how did you grow in that situation? Well, at that time, I mean, you picture being on that Titanic, the Titanic, right? Uh, if you picture yourself being on the Titanic, that's kind of what it felt like. You know, when you yeah. could turn on the TV and you're watching CNN or whatever channels you watch and you see your boss's boss on there that you just spoke to three hours earlier in the hallway and they told you everything was fine. Don't worry about it. Keep your head down. Just keep doing what you do. And then they go on. And I think it was like Anderson Cooper or something like that. And they say, if we don't hit 16 million or we don't get support, we're going to go into bankruptcy. And I'm like, wait, what? You just told me everything was fine and to keep my head down. So at that moment, I think everybody was trying to get off the ship. Right. And Unfortunately, this wasn't just limited to the automotive industry. Uh, so I was trying to interview. I was calling everybody I could and ultimately couldn't find a, another opportunity. So we weathered that storm um, and then ultimately moved to Chicago uh, about maybe a, a couple of years later, back in, in 2011, 2012. Um, so, yeah, and that, at that moment for me, it was really about diversifying my resume as well as starting to diversify my income where I wasn't solely tied to one job, but also I wasn't just building experience in one industry, but I could tap into other industries as well. Cause up to that point I had just done automotive. So, and I felt that was part of the reasons that I was having a trouble getting other job opportunities was because they looked at the resume and said, well, you've done automotive and automotive and that's it. So right, you know, right. diversifying that, resume, networking with other people. That was a big part of, you know, my goal and my thinking at that time to say, listen, always have options and moves on the table. So we're not boxed in and really, you know, just taking whatever someone has to present to us. So what was that like as far as um, making that transition, but then also making that transition? And you said when you got to Chicago, you also, that was when you made your first investment. What was, what was that investment? So I'm a big fan of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, right? I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with the book. And I had read Rich Dad, Poor Dad shortly after college. So the, the mindset and the thinking had been there for me for a long time. I actually wanted to invest while I was living in Detroit. But again, when you see what's happening with the city, you know, there certainly wasn't a lot of confidence in, uh, in my, you know, for, as a newbie investor to say, oh yeah, now's a perfect time to invest in investing in Detroit right. is exactly where I want to go when I didn't know if I would have a job in a, in a month. Right. So that was really the challenge. So the big thing for me was, well, listen, I need to get to a city that is a bit more stable and that would allow me to, to start to really plant seeds, grow roots and really start to build a portfolio. So that was really the thinking and moving to Chicago. I had the plan all along. Um, I just needed to be in place where I wasn't worried about the city as much. Um, so with that said, back in 2011, we moved to Chicago. I made my first investment in 2012 and we bought a two unit building. We lived in one unit and we rented out the other unit. So a lot of people call it a house hack. And I think anyone looking to start out in real estate, specifically if you want to start building in multifamily. But if you want to start out in real estate, this is a phenomenal strategy that you should at least have on your radar because you can get into a property for pretty much as little down as possible. And if you're renting currently, to go from being a renter, maintain the lifestyle, but transition to the point where you own the small building, a two to four unit building, let the other 
you know, tenant, one to three units, pay for the mortgage, pay, cover the expenses, and maybe you're only left with a small portion or you're making profit, you're going from a renter to being uh, an owner and getting equity on your own. And you can do this with just three and a half percent down um, with an FHA loan. So it's a phenomenal way to get in. And that's exactly what we did. We renovated the kitchen, did some renovations to the property, and we created a lot of equity in that first property. And that really gave us the confidence that we needed to really scale and grow from there. Yeah, that's, and I highly recommend that to everybody listening as well. And, and that's honestly, that's what Jeanette and I did on our first house. Uh, it was a little bit different where we, we actually did part of it as Airbnb. Um, but I highly recommend finding a way where your first house can also be an income generator for you. And then you can just save money to roll that into the next house or roll it into the next investment. Um, and you, you're right. I mean, the three and a half percent down, there is so many benefits to real estate and getting that first property. Um, so did you, did you save up for that first property or how did you, did you do three and a half percent down? We did three and a half percent down, but I wasn't even aware that you could do that. So we had been <laughs> saving money. So we, we knew we could get in for, I think, 10%. So we knew we didn't have to do 25%. I think we were planning on a 10% down payment. And then as we started looking at properties and actually talking to our real estate agent, she informed us about FHA and that we would qualify and the properties that we were looking at would qualify. Um, so that really freed up capital. So what we did with that capital was we actually just took it and we reinvested it directly into the property to do renovations. So we used the money we had planned on spending for the down payment to fix up the kitchen, to make other improvements, to make other upgrades. So we did not go into this thinking, oh, we're going to go in, we're going to rehab this and that, and it's going to be worth X when we're done. We didn't think about it like that at all. Right. We basically said, listen, let's find the best neighborhood we can. Let's find a place that we feel comfortable living in, you know, for the foreseeable future, if we were to have kids, great schools, all that stuff. And we found a place that we were really confident was undervalued because there was a two bedroom uh, apartment on the first floor and a three bedroom on the top floor. Well, the two bedroom was getting $1,400 in rent. The three bedroom was getting 1225. Hmm. So we like, you don't have to be a real estate genius right. to know that that three bedroom was undervalued. Right. So we went in, we said, listen, let's make that our owner's unit. So we basically gutted the kitchen, redid the kitchen, um, and then redid some of the exterior we painted and all that kind of stuff. And what we didn't realize is that we were forcing appreciation. I didn't know these terms at the time. Right? I didn't know about forced appreciation or equity. Um, but we were doing all of those things. And essentially, we had put over $100,000 in equity into the property above and beyond the money that we invested. So that really freed up even more opportunities. And it's one of the reasons even today we think value-add investing is the best way to go. If you can find a cash flow income producing property with an opportunity to increase the value, to increase the net operating income of that property, it is going to give you the best chance at being a successful investor. So we really, really focus on value-add investing, focusing on cash flow with upside equity potential. I love that. And I love how like you just, you have that down. Um, and that's exactly right. I mean, there is lower risk and there's there's significant reward in being able to basically create your own equity um, by fixing up properties. Um, so you started off with a, a duplex and are now have done, you know, close to $90 million. Um, and it, it speaks to, you know, what you're doing works and you're doing it well and you're very successful at you, uh, what you're doing. And, and um, so walk us through that. So you've had that first property. How did you get from two units to $90 million? Um, that's a phenomenal question. <laughs> I had a friend and the, the, the answer, and it's a great question. I asked the same question in a similar fashion to a friend. I had a friend who had nine units when I met her, which I thought was the biggest thing in the world. I'm like, man, you got nine units, nine. It was, she had three, three unit buildings. And um, I remember going to the meetup and that's the first thing, network, go to meetups, talk to people, listen to podcasts like this, but follow up and reach out. So that's the first tip I'll give you. And uh, she was the organizer of the meetup. And we got in, you know, we talked at the meetups a little bit here and there. 
And then, um, you know, we exchanged information and one, you know, when she went from nine units, which I was already impressed with, and then I read that she went to 90 units and this was within about maybe a nine month window. I said, what, how is this possible? (laughs) Yeah. I've never seen this. I've never heard of this. Like at no point in our conversations, was it clear that she was going to balloon her portfolio? So I reached out and said, can we please do breakfast? I have to learn more about what you did. So we sat down, we had breakfast, and I just asked her directly. I said, how did you go from nine units to 90 units in such a short period of time? And she explained to me that she had been getting people reaching out to her and saying they wanted to invest with her. And she was hesitant at first, and she said no a few times. And then finally she said, well, listen, here are the parameters. Let's talk about deal structure. And if I find properties, we can do this together. They agreed. She went out basically with a picture like a line of credit or a blank check to go, or not a blank check. Let's say she had half a million dollars, basically right. a million dollars to go out and go buy a million dollars worth of properties or whatever the number was. And that's what she did. She went out to a market that was nearby and she bought, you know, what she had in her budget um, to, to help with her and her investors. So as we talked more and more about it, I thought that was great. I didn't immediately say, oh, I want to do that. What I did say was, and at that moment, I think I had um, just bought my second property. So I was up to five whole units, five out of two units. And yeah. Um, <laughs> but at that point, I started to see other people doing pretty big deals. I met this other guy who he had a pretty big portfolio and he was a young guy. And, um, and as I talked to more people, I realized the issue that I started running into was I was running out of my own money. You know, I would invest my money in these deals. And, you know, after you invest your money, you know, I had to wait. I went back into savings mode and I would save all year long until I could get another $100,000 and then I would buy another property. And I sat down with that friend again the first time and I said, all right, listen. So I realized my journey is slow. You have gone pretty big, pretty fast. Um, you know, I'm thinking about starting to work with investors. Can you talk to me about, you know, scaling your thoughts? And she basically said, listen, there's two ways people scale. You can either flip properties to generate enough income to just invest it directly back into your properties or into multifamily, or you can start working with other people's money and start working with investors. Um, I made the mistake of doing both. (laughs) If I could go (laughs) back, I would only work with investors, but working with investors has opened up the door for me to scale into the larger portfolio that you talked about. And it's not just me doing it. You really have to be team oriented. You really have to have a mindset to say, how can I help others? How can I serve others? What value do they need? What value can I provide? And if you can think about being on a team as opposed to just doing everything by yourself, then you can scale at the capacity that we've been able to do it. To be completely clear, I don't own $90 million worth of real estate by myself. I partner with other operators on some of the, on most of those deals. We partner with investors on those deals. We do have some that are just ours or some that are ours with other JVs. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, part of it is just agreeing to take a smaller slice of a pie, of a much bigger pie, where there's a lot more advantages in place. Because the larger the deal is, the, the less the risk actually is to a lot of degrees. Now, I'm going to say that again because I know some people probably don't believe me. The larger the deal, the less the risk. And that's a few different reasons. One, just think about how many people have to be involved in a large deal. Okay, you buy a 150-unit apartment complex, let's say it's valued at $10 million. Well, the lenders who lend on $10 million they're probably pretty savvy on evaluating and analyzing deals. The companies that vendors that are going to come on, your property management, your construction crews, those individuals are going to be professionals who this is what they do full time. 100% large scale commercial Mm -hmm. real estate, okay? Investors, you know, these are going to be savvy individuals who have made the kind of money to invest $50,000 into a passive real estate investment opportunity. So to raise that kind of capital, that means all these different people have to look at the deal, 
analyze the deal, go through their questions and make the decision to say, yes, this is a deal that I want to put my $50,000 into. So you have a lot more eyes on the deal, not to mention inspectors and all that kind of stuff too, right? But you have a lot more eyes on a deal. If I do a three unit deal or a single family house deal, I might be the only person who actually sees it, you know, depending on whose capital right, um, exactly. is coming into it, right? It might be me and one or two other people, but that's it. And my construction guy might be a part-time handyman, you know? So you're not getting people dedicated as you do on commercial real estate. And I think that's really the biggest thing. It took me a while to figure that out. I mean, I read that in books years ago and I just thought it was BS. I thought it was just some crap people say to, you know, make money. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, there, there's a book in particular, I think it's Ken McElroy. And I think at, uh, it's either Ken, Ma I think it's Ken McElroy, but at, at one point in the book, he says, you know, um, your first deal could be a duplex or it could be a 150 unit deal. And I'm like, get the F out of here. Like no one's doing their first deal is 150 units. People are doing their first deal at 150 units. Yeah. You just aren't doing it all by yourself. Exactly. That's really the key. And, and I appreciate your transparency on that saying, you know, Hey, it's not just me with $90 million in real estate. Like it takes a village to do these things. And like you said, there's a huge benefit to having a village because you can spread out your tasks. You can accomplish more. You can get a bigger, you can get a, a piece of a bigger pie. Uh, and to your point, I mean, it's funny. We always say, we're like, well, you know, it takes the same amount of work to do even like a 50 unit deal compared to a 200 unit deal. Like why not take that look and say, Hey, let's spend our time, same amount of time and get four times the units uh, it, on the development side or the acquisition side. And same thing with people looking at what we're doing, you know, people are like, well, you know, how much oversight do you have? And, and how, you know, how do you sure this is going to move forward? And they're like, well, we have like five other partners or companies that are directly and, and very, very much liable or like help, you know, they're going to make sure this thing moves forward and is a successful deal. Um, so you, you have that benefit on your side as you're looking at multifamily deals and there's also more economies of scale as well. Once you get into those larger, larger unit sizes. Yeah. I, I think the biggest thing is really thinking about the difference between an investment, which is, you know, really passive and you put your money in and you expect the money to come back versus a business, you know, and in a business, just like, you know, wherever you're working or whatever you're doing, um, you're an employee. And there's a specific role and task and responsibilities that you have. And it's the same thing here. You know, if you're buying a single family rental, then yes, it's an investment. And you're going to ask those questions. Well, how do you, how are you going to manage it and all those things? If you're buying 150 units, what you're really doing is buying a business. You're buying a small business and there's cash flow, there's expenses, there's income, and you're operating a business. And if you approach it with that mentality, then the logic becomes a little bit clearer because there's money for all that. You know, who's going to pick up trash on the parkway? Who's going to make sure all the leases are renewed? A property manager, you're going to hire somebody to do that. That's their full-time job. This is what they do for a living. And guess what? It's, they're not thinking about it as investors or any of that stuff. This is their job, period. You know, so if you think about the business aspect and running a business, then you start to understand how these larger deals really come to fruition as opposed to, um, you know, it just being a, a, an investment where I'm just calling up a bunch of people and saying, hey, let's put our money together and go buy this thing and let's cross our fingers and hope it works. It's not yeah. really what we do. So how did you go about when you said you first started working with other people's money with investors? What was that process like and how did you convince or, or, or gain those first invents, investors? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a phenomenal question, right? Because I think the first thing that it, that it takes is um, you have to have the conversations. So, you know, um, the, the process for me was coming off of the earlier conversations we talked about, I realized that for me to continue to use all of my own money was going to be a long trek and there had to be a quicker way to establish it. The other important thing that happened was I had friends and some family members who were watching what we were doing and they started to say things like, hey, that looks really cool. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you're doing. So I would tell them what I was doing and I would tell them how to do it. And they would kind of look at me with almost blank stares and say, yeah, I'm not, 
going to do all that work. Um, and I would get frustrated. And then I realized that there was probably an opportunity to bring them in as partners, as opposed to telling them how to do it and to go out and do it. They could actually partner with us. And that would be actually a win-win scenario where they could get the benefits, but they don't have to do the work. I could get some extra capital, which would allow me to grow faster. And I was happy doing the work. So I didn't mind that as well. So that's when I opened myself up to really work with other people's money. Now I'll say that in having conversations with investors, I got a pretty good response, um, but I didn't have that next deal. And the way I analyzed deals with an investor was different than the way I was analyzing them for myself. Because for myself, I just needed a double digit return. I was happy. Um, but with investors, they kind of want a similar return. Plus there's gotta be room for me to make some money. So it started to become a little bit tighter. Um, I ended up hiring a mentor who really helped me and that was by happenstance. But you know, there's this, uh, the, the adage that when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Well, that's pretty much what happened. I had no clue. I did not plan on hiring a mentor. I met this guy for lunch because he lived in the city I knew I would be moving to. And I wanted to just learn more about the city and talk to folks who were investors in the city. And I learned that he had a mentoring program. Um, and at that moment, I said, man, you know, I've been thinking about how to raise money and the things that I've been concerned with is I don't want to lose anyone's money. That was my thinking at the time was, you know, I definitely don't want to lose anyone's money. So I want to surround myself with somebody who can help me protect our investors. Because these are people I care about. These are my friends, my family, and right. you know, the other people. The last thing I want to do is approach them, lose their money and have, you know, negative ramifications. So um, I had, you know, I decided to hire him and I watched him grow his portfolio and we started to implement some of those strategies. So, so that's kind of how we, we started and took off. Um, to directly answer the last part of your question, though, we didn't have a deal. So we, we, it took a minute for us to find a deal. Um, and I ended up coming across a guy I met at a conference. Uh, it was actually the, the, my mentor's conference. So I met um, this gentleman at the conference. We spoke. And we kind of stayed in touch. When I ended up launching Target Market Insights, he was one of the early guests. And shortly after we finished hitting the record button, I asked him what was going on. He told me he had a deal that he um, would think, thought he was going to get under contract. And I expressed an interest in partnering with him if I could, because I had been at this point talking to my investors, but I didn't have the deal to put them into. And I really needed that opportunity. So at that moment, that's when um, he called me back maybe two weeks later and said, hey, look, if you're still interested, I could use some help. And that was our first deal, you know, and all came from my mentor, as well as going to that conference. And uh, we brought in our investors and, you know, we opened up ourselves to the approach of partnering with operators, as well as continuing to look for our own deals and operating our own deals, but really making ourselves a bit more open-minded in how we did deals, as opposed to only focusing on us being kind of the, the end-all be-all to the operations. Man, so many, so many like takeaways from that little story. I think that, you know, you, you put yourself out there at the conference, you're surrounding yourself by, with people that are like-minded individuals that are go-getters that are, that are trying to put together deals. Um, and you also, you primed your investors, you got them ready for the capital. The capital is waiting for the right deal. And then of course you mentioned the podcast, which is a great way um, to network, to meet people, to raise capital, to meet potential partners, uh, and then utilizing that podcast to build a relationship and then marry the, the capital with the deal. Um, and then finally, I think that the great point of like being flexible and knowing that, you know, especially to get started in multifamily investing, you don't necessarily have to be the one finding the deal. Um, you can be, there's, there's many different roles to be played. Uh, on the ownership side. And one of those is capital raising. Uh, and that sounds like that's how you got into that, that first deal with that partner. Um, and I highly recommend that to anybody listening of if you have your own network of investors, if you have people, you know, that have capital, um, then try to let people know that are putting together deals that already have deals that have a pipeline and see how you can marry the two. No, absolutely. I mean, I think that's the the biggest thing for us was, you know, really being open-minded, thinking about our investors and what, what, what ultimately happened. I think the, even the biggest thing and to, to share more with your audience is it started to be less about me and what I wanted 
in the, the I wanted a bigger slice of the pie, right? Um, and that's why I was looking for my own deals because you get a bigger slice of the pie that way. Um, but it started to be less about what I needed and started to be more about what my investors needed. And I'm not just saying they wanted to get in a deal. They believed in what I told them, all the benefits of multifamily investing, and they needed those benefits. You know, they needed the tax savings and the tax advantages. So they started really peppering me even more to say, hey, John, where are you at with deals? You know, I, I could really use some tax reductions. I could really use some passive income. Otherwise, I'm looking at a hefty tax bill. And at that moment, I realized I wasn't just a real estate investor, a multifamily investor. I was a problem solver. And I, what I had told them unbeknownst to myself, I had sold myself as someone who could help them solve that problem. And I, I was only looking at one avenue to solve it. And at that moment, I decided to open myself up to say, okay, yes, it's multifamily. Yes, it's, you know, through bringing capital to the deal and being general partners, but I don't have to do everything in the deal. And I think at that moment, when I saw myself as more of a servant and someone who was helping other people and truly believing in what I was, what I was telling, and when I say truly believing, I think when I started off, I looked at it from my perspective, which was if I have money then I can buy more apartments, then I can grow my portfolio, then I can, you know, build more money and do whatever I want to do. And that was really the wrong perspective. Where things really started to take off was, what do they need? How can I help them get what they need? And how can I serve them and be a better person in serving them? When that, when that really shifted, and that wasn't an immediate thing, but like I said, it, it took a little bit of time. But when I realized like, no, this is a business for real. It truly is a business. It's not about me and my investments. It's about this business of serving other people, people, helping families create and preserve wealth through multifamily investing. And when I made that the core of what we wanted to do, that's where life became a little bit easier and kind of the, you know, the universe started to um, open up doors and create opportunities that made it easier for us to serve our investors. That's awesome. So what, what have you seen most recently has been your best way of creating new investors? Yeah, I mean, I think engagement is the biggest thing, right? Um, it really comes down to building real relationships. Uh, and, and that's multiple things, right? You get leads from um, a lot of different avenues, you know, so we host the podcast, I host a monthly meetup, we have our annual conference coming up as well. Um, so we do those different events and, and, and platforms and we connect with a lot of people through there. Social media is a big one where we obviously get to engage and connect with people via social media. So, but I would say I don't think that there's a tactic, if you will, that really jumps out uh, one over the other. Um, I really think it comes down to building real engagement. Now, what I will say is face-to-face -face works better than um, phone calls. Phone calls work better than just emails. Um, so, you know, the more of a real connection, the easier it is to, you know, build your investor database because ultimately you're doing business with people and people do business with people that they know, like, and trust. So if they haven't ever talked to you, then it's going to be hard for them to trust you, right? Or to know you at that level. If they have seen you, if they've, if they've shaken your hand or if they shook your hand, I should say, if they've, you know, talked to you on the phone, if they know a little bit about you and your family, um, it's going to be a little bit easier for them to get comfortable doing business with you. Um, so, so you kind of just want to take a moment to learn from that and connect with people. And I, I just say, show up with your integrity, be your true self. And if you're an honest person, um, you know, I think people see that. I think people know um, when you're being honest or if you have integrity or not. And, uh, you know, I think if you come with that, that's really helped us. But, you know, we do use a, a few different platforms to connect with investors and try to stay on top of things and grow it from a business standpoint. But I would say we try to, you know, where they come from matters a little less as much as, you know, once they kind of connect with us, we try to just make sure we understand what it is they're looking for, is what we do a fit for them, and how can we best serve them and how can we help them. That's great. And you mentioned the, the conference. Let, let's dive into a little bit of how that got started and uh, kind of the, the origin story behind that. 
Yeah. So uh, Bree Schmidt's a good friend of mine. Um, in fact, the story I told earlier was uh, Bree was that that investor that went from nine to 90 units. And, uh, you know, she and I were out in San Francisco um, at the San Francisco based summit. I actually think during the conversation when she convinced me to start raising money, I think we started talking about what an event in Chicago would look like. Uh, And the reason was we, uh, my wife and I, we had went to an event. Okay. It was a, uh, one of those guru seminars, right? One of the TV guru seminars. And we were seriously considering, I'm going to really put myself out there. I was seriously considering paying $35,000, for this mentorship program i really was like we sat we thought about it (laughs) and for me it was like man they got all the the tools and the systems and i had already built a a small portfolio um and i was sitting there contemplating it you know and they were like just go raise your credit card limits and i was like so when i got home and out of that environment i was like yo what (laughs) (laughs) like what uh and and the what wasn't that and if you've done it that's like, I don't, I'm not one of those guys who just bashes it. I think if you can find the right mentors or whatever you need, and if it works for you, great. So I don't have anything negative to say from that standpoint. What I will say for us is we recognize that there are way more resources available to us and we need to be more prudent in using those resources, bigger pockets being one of them, tapping into the investors we met like Bree. So Bree and I were talking about it. And at that moment, I was kind of telling Brie that story and she's like, yeah, we always get these gurus and like no one's really building the, the types of events where people can just come together and learn and connect. And she was really active on bigger pockets. So we ended up going out to the San Francisco Bay Summit hosted by my man, Jay Martin, and uh, had a great time out there. She and I were outside, you know, having some drinks, a lot of tequila, shots of tequila. And um, <laughs> I think, I think at one moment I looked at her because I knew she wanted to create something in Chicago. And she had told me there was one person who had talked about helping her at one point, um, but that kind of fell apart. And I looked at her and I said, we could build this. And uh, she looked at me and said, yeah. I said, yeah, let's go build this. And that was, that was in November. And a month later, we were deep into planning and we announced the event for may you know basically six months later six months later we did the first ever midwest summit uh so yeah we you know that that event came together took a lot of work a lot of effort to pull off but the good thing is i had a background in marketing so i had done events my entire career i've done events around the super bowl and new year's eve and things like that and brie had great connections and you know she's a very driven person so working together we felt like we could navigate the landscape to pull the event off. And we had a, a phenomenal turnout for the first event. Um, you know, Joe Fearless was one of our, our keynote speakers. Joe's a mentor of mine and did an excellent job. Um, you know, I'll be at the best ever conference this year. I've been there every year. And, um, you know, just going and being around people. And I think that was the biggest thing, being around people who share the passion, who are looking to change their lives or to elevate their lives or continue to impact other people's lives that really made it bigger than me. And I think at that moment, I recognized that, you know, we're just scratching the surface. There's a lot more that we could be doing to help people. Um, and, you know, it gets me really excited thinking about yeah. it. So next one's uh, May 16th to 17th. So super excited about the lineup this year. I've, I've got some guests that I've been trying to get for two years now. So super excited about everybody we have coming together and what the event's going to be this year. That's amazing. And, and where can our listeners find out more about the conference. Yeah, go to midwestresummit.com. That's the website. So all the event information will be up there. Um, you know, come January 31st, all of the current speakers will be uploaded and we'll kind of really start sharing more about it. So uh, lots of great information. Uh, again, I'm really excited for the event, but you can check out all the updates at midwestresummit.com. I love it. And uh, it's pretty amazing to see like that, that growth pattern of like, you know, you, you just, you put the idea out there six months later, you have your first conference. And then now, you know, you're, you're doing your third ever Midwest real estate summit. Uh, that's pretty, that's pretty awesome, man. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things too, where um, I think in life, we, we all have ideas, right. And we have thoughts 
And sometimes the stars just don't align to pull it off or we start to talk ourselves out of something where it gets too big. This is one of those things where um, it's great to have a partner, whether it's an accountability partner, a friend, a wife, a mentor. But when you have someone else who you know has a vested interest, it kind of forces you to step outside of your comfort zone. If it was just me by myself, honestly, I would have woke up and said, oh, man, I'm not doing that. What was I? man that was the tequila talking but you know recognizing that we had this conversation we put in the universe and uh i I think i woke up the next day and i sent her a text i said hey um are you serious about doing this thing she said yeah if you are i am and we said all right well let's let's do it and i think that was a great thing to to have that kind of back and forth and to have people where you could help for me it was she had helped me so much um up to that point to build my confidence um, to be able to scale and to do the things that I had started to do. And I wanted to do something that was her vision and obviously it helped me as well, but her vision was to try to create something like this. So that was one of the other reasons that um, it was really important for me to like, all right, how can you serve people and help them reach their goals too? Because if you spend your energy figuring out what other people want and how you can help them get it, man, that just comes back. You know, that just, yeah. that just works back, especially if you're, your win is already built into that too. That's even better. I mean, why wouldn't I go out of my way to help do something that's going to work for me as well? So, uh, but yeah, man, this third year that we're doing the conference and super excited about this year. That's amazing. Guys, take John up on that. That's, that's going to be an awesome conference. I'm excited to, to see who's going to be there. Um, and so as far as, I mean, it, it, it literally sounds like everything you're doing has this, it all circles back to how can I help others? How can I help others grow and create this, this um, lifestyle that they want, the um, financial security that they want, pre- preserving their capital and helping them, everyone, other people benefit from multifamily investing? Yeah, I mean, it really does. And I will tell you, I'm not one of those people who can speak eloquently about the virtues of, you know, serving like that's, this is not coming from that place. This is coming from really trial and error of what has worked and what has happened in my life. I think at a core intuitively, yes, you know, I I recognize, Hey, work with other people, be a good, you know, all the stuff that good people are taught from being a child. Right. Um, But I think for me, what has really been eye-opening is that it's not just lip service. The stuff you're reading in books that you're listening to in podcasts, the, you know, the, the, the affirmations, the gratitude, those things, it's not BS. It's not snake oil. And I think for me, it took a minute to really understand that aspect of it, you know, because if you come from a place where um, it's a bit more, I don't, I want to say gritty, but, you know, if you're not really taught to think with abundance and you come from a place of limitations or scarcity, then you don't, you don't automatically default to, oh, let me serve other people. You're thinking about, dude, I only have so much on my plate. I can't serve other people because I need what I have. And it really takes work to shift your mind and it takes small wins to do that. And like I said, for me, I was fortunate enough to fall into that kind of mindset organically by seeing the small wins and then asking myself, okay, why did that small win happen? Oh, well, that small win happened because I asked that person this, or I did this for that person. So she introduced me to it. So, you know, and when you, when you backtrack and just really document where you're winning, how you're winning, what are the common themes for me, at least, I tended to do well when I was focused on serving other people and I tended to, I tended to struggle. I don't know if tended is a word, by the way, but <laughs> I, I tended to struggle when I was focused on what I saw as a win or what I wanted to get out of a situation. So That's awesome. I love that. Um, and, and that kind of segues into uh, one last thing I wanted to, for us to dive into is uh, your goal setting. And, and how you go about that and any advice you would have for our monumental listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think goal setting is a very important aspect of success. Um, first of all, I, I do think that it's not just about goals, 
but I think it's about our habits and our systems. I'm a big fan of uh, Atomic Habits by James Clear. It is a phenomenal book. I'm reading that right now. Oh my goodness. It's such a good book. Um, I have three copies of it. No joke. (laughs) And uh, it's such a good book. And I I follow him. It's like the only newsletter I like rush to go sign up and I can't wait (laughs) to open up his Thursday emails. And the reason is it really helped me understand why people don't reach their goals and it it's not about your goals people don't rise up to the level of their goals they fall to the systems the level of their systems that they have in place and that's a quote from james um so when you think about the systems they don't have to be complicated it's the small everyday minutiae things if you want to lose weight you need to focus on running it's not about running it's about putting on your running shoes just make it a habit of every day or put on your running shoes. And if you don't want to run, don't run, go back to sleep, whatever. If you want to be an early riser, get out of bed, stretch at 5 a.m., whatever it is. You want to go back to sleep, go back to sleep, but make a habit of standing up and getting out of bed. At some point you'll say, all right, well, I'm up. I might as well just start my day. But if you make a habit of just getting out of bed, the moment that alarm goes off or putting your clock on the other or watch your phone on the other side of the room, Like if you create the systems that make it easy to build great habits, then that's going to make life a little bit easier. So I still do the goal setting and I absolutely go through. And what we've done is we started with our 2030 goals. So we did it for the decade and we kind of did, okay, kind of like the one thing where we backed into, okay, what do I need to do in 2020 to keep me on pace for my 2030 goals? Um, And then we break that down into the quarter, break that down to the week or the month, then the week, then the day. Right. So you kind of have a sense of which direction you should be going Um, before the show. I kind of told you last year, I I kind of missed my mark on uh, the number of deals that we wanted to do. Part of that was we just simply didn't see enough good deals. Now, I could blame the market. I could say the market's too hot. I could say a bunch of stuff that most people actually agree with. Right. But the reality is I can't control that. And what I can control is how many deals I look at how many brokers I talk to, how many deals I analyze, how many offers I submit. Um, I, you know, I could say it's too hot, but if I never submit an offer, how do I know? So, you know, those are the things that we've kind of stepped back to say, Hey, we need to, we need to up our level of execution to match what our goals are and set the systems in place to make sure we can have success as opposed to just relying on, that deal to magically come across our labs or our our inbox. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. I think it comes down to what you track is what you get better at. Um, That's something that, you know, we're constantly working on in our business and and also on the personal side is like, what can we be doing um, each week and making sure we're keeping track of it. And then, and then what can we change to implement to make that better? Um, Because, you can track things on the front end and change them much more quickly than if you're looking back and saying, okay, well, what in the last year, it's almost like a a reactive at that point. Whereas if you're, if you're really tracking something, you can be proactive in your approach. So I love that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, I feel like we could keep going, John, but let's, let's jump into our uh, monumental questions. All right. What does success mean to you? Freedom. You know, the freedom to live life as you choose. That is what success really is all about. Boom. Couldn't agree more. Um, what about daily habits or morning rituals? Uh, so I get up and I do 50 push-ups the moment I get out of bed as long as I don't peel myself. So <laughs> if, I can, <laughs> if, if I can do it before going to the restroom, I do. If I really have to go to the restroom first, I'll do that. Then I'll do the 50 push-ups. And then I try to, uh, journaling is a big goal for mine, of mine uh, for 2020. So I'm um, waking up and journaling daily is a, is a big goal that we're working on as well. So that's the work in progress, but that's something else we've incorporated into the morning ritual. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and then finally, what is a favorite book or book you're currently reading? just told you atomic habits man it's amazing. <laughs> atomic habits by james clear i'll give you a couple others though as well um crushing it by gary v i know a lot of people read that book a long time ago i'm just getting into it now really great book for anyone looking to grow their presence especially in social media 
Um, another one that I loved was, uh, you know, Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. That's a phenomenal oh, yeah. read. It, I listened to the audible version of it, which is basically like the book and the podcast as well yeah, uh, yeah. with great context. So it's like 13 hours long or something like that. So it's not a quick, easy read or listen, but I, I thought it was well worth and I definitely look forward to, to that information. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, all right, guys. Uh, well, first, thank you um, to John for for all the value bombs in this episode. And and also, how can our monumental listeners reach out to you or follow you? Yeah, so if you want to, if you're interested in multifamily investing or marketing tips to work as an, either an investor or an entrepreneur, you should definitely check out the podcast, Target Market Insights, Multifamily and Marketing. So that's available everywhere you listen to podcasts. Um, you can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, sometimes more active on LinkedIn and Instagram. Uh, you can find me at Jay Kasman. That's J-C-A-S-M-O-N. And then you can always email me if you want to learn more about multifamily investing or what we do. I'm happy to jump on a, a short call as well as answer some questions via email. My email address is john at kasmancapital.com. And we do have a sample deal as well on our website. So if you're interested in just seeing what a potential deal could look like for either your own personal uh, reasons or you're interested in doing some sort of passive investing, it's a great way to at least get a glance at what a sample deal package looks like. So you can check that out on our website as well. Love it. Guys, take him up on that. Uh, John is bringing massive value and John is just an awesome guy. And I've, I've really enjoyed getting to know you and I, I enjoy this episode and um, I guess we're going to see each other soon at best ever too. So guys, if you're going to come out the best ever here in a few weeks, um, you'll be seeing both of us. So if you guys enjoyed today's episode, make sure to share it on social media, tag John, tag me, LinkedIn, Instagram, wherever. Let us know you're listening. Let us know you enjoyed today's episode. Uh, and also don't forget to rate, subscribe, review on iTunes or wherever you listen to Monumental. And with that, guys, have a monumental day. Thank you.